The following podcast contains explicit language. From WBUR Boston and Slate. Hello and welcome to The Checkup, health news you and your family can use. Although this week's episode probably isn't great for the kids. So we'll leave them home. Good idea. I'm Rachel Zimmerman, co-host of WBUR's Common Health blog and former healthcare reporter with The Wall Street Journal. And I'm Carrie Goldberg, also co-host of the Common Health blog at WBUR and a former Boston bureau chief of The New York Times. Hey, Carrie. Rachel, how are you? Good. Today's episode is called Below the Waist. We'll be discussing sex problems, one that mostly affects women and one that mostly affects men and some solutions. We're even going to mention Bill Clinton. That's how high up Let's let's not start with Bill. We begin with women's troubles and a terribly alarming statistic. A recent national survey on the sex lives of men and women found that about one-third of women experienced pain during sex. One-third. So that's that's almost unbelievable. That's huge. It's probably underreported, Carrie, right? Because no one wants to admit they're having bad sex and trouble in bed. No one wants to admit it even to themselves, I think. Right. And this is beyond mere discomfort. This is, you know, mild to moderate pain. I spoke with the author of that sex survey, Debbie Herbenick. She's a research scientist at Indiana University and the co-director of the Center for Sexual Health Promotion there. And she told me she's about to publish a new sex study that confirms that 30% number. Because I bet a lot of people questioned a number that high, right? She might have questioned it herself. Right. And this new research drills down even further. It talks about how long the pain lasted, where in the body it was located, and what, if anything, individuals did in response to the pain. And Debbie told me that many women who experience pain don't even tell their partners about it. And mostly it's for reasons of, you know, not wanting to to kind of kill the mood, not wanting to interrupt sex. Um, And and some say, you know, that they know it's fleeting. They know it will pass. Um, One woman was actually kind of funny and made kind of a comment in the survey that it would take longer to tell her partner than it would for sex to finish. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Is that <laughs> so, where know, we but, are? But that's a reality for some couples, yeah, right? That, right. You know, sometimes sex is very quick. And what um, about the whole secrecy part, which really intrigues me? Did they seek any help or treatment from a doctor, for instance? You know, mostly they're not. And, and I, you know, when I imagine a lot of this pain, I, I think most of it's probably not pain that really needs to be addressed with a doctor. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of this may be the common experience of kind of bumping up against the cervix. Right. Or just having kind of rough, vigorous, exciting sex that, that feels that way. But others could be pain related to endometriosis, mm-hmm. to um, pelvic floor muscle issues, to vulvar skin disorders. So there, uh, there's no doubt, I mean, at any given time, there are many women who have undiagnosed or poorly diagnosed conditions that are causing them pain. So certainly I think that women who experience severe, moderate to severe pain or even small fleeting pain, but that that sort of bothers them or that happens from time to time, it's always worth bringing it to the attention of a healthcare provider. Right. I wonder if providers are aware of the extent of this. I know women who had this initial discussion with doctors and doctors said, oh, you had a baby. This is how sex is going to be from now on. Yeah, and I think, you know, although it's true that life changes and bodies change after you have kids, I don't think that's sufficient information because many things can be improved. um, And that doesn't help women to just say, well, you know, welcome to the new norm. Right. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else in this new data that struck you? The prevalence of of pain during anal intercourse struck me, and that's probably not terribly surprising to many people. You know, the anus doesn't lubricate on its own. 
Um, you know, I think we still lack a lot of good data on anal sex to understand how many women engage in anal sex because they want to versus right. they're just trying to please their partner. Right. So there were, you know, very high rates of reported pain during anal sex, you know, around 70%. So given the last data and this new research that's coming out, what's your takeaway on this particular issue? Yeah, my takeaway is that, you know, some degree of pain is common for women during sex. Fortunately, most women don't experience chronic ongoing pain, but all women, regardless of how rarely or how often or how severe the pain is, deserve some attention to that. And I think should be bringing it up to their healthcare provider, but also should be talking about it with their partner. Giving a partner some insight into your life, it helps you become more intimate. It helps you understand so that your partner knows to be careful and sensitive and gentle. So wait, I just can't imagine like suffering pain and not telling anyone about it. Can you? Well, I can imagine it because I was one of those women. All right. Tell I didn't suffer for years. I wasn't one of those women. But a few years ago, I was having pain during sex. I tried to ignore it for a while, as you do, you know. Well, wait, I actually don't know. So what kind of pain? Like excruciating pain? Not excruciating, but extreme burning. I don't want to get into all of the details, but suffice to say, it was startling enough that I soon realized I had to go figure out what was causing it and fix it. Uh So I went to my OB, who I love, and she did a pelvic exam, and she told me that my pelvic muscles were totally clenched in spasm. So what do you do? Well, after the exam, she took out her little prescription notepad and actually wrote me a prescription for pelvic floor massage. I kid you not. Sounds like the most intimate form of massage possible. Right. Anyway, I ultimately did go to this incredible pelvic floor physical therapist. Wow. And, you know, I thought, okay, they'll give me Kegel exercises, you know, that right. clench your pee muscles. and Right. But it was way beyond that. I mean, there was biofeedback. There was keeping a bladder diary, discussions about dietary changes that could help. There was actual massage. Did she touch you? Yeah, she did. She did an internal pelvic floor massage. With her fingers? Yes, indeed, baby. (laughs) (laughs) So this is sounding like... Sexual, though. No, I mean, is getting a pelvic exam when you're pregnant sexual? It's like that. (laughs) Okay. So you have somebody giving you an internal massage, theoretically to relax those muscles. But I have to say that I think that would make me more tense than I was going into it. Well, that was not my experience. I mean, it was more sort of holding the muscles, having me feel the pressure and then relaxing around it. Believe it or not, it was not sexual in any way. I I do believe you. So it was kind of an education in your own anatomy to some extent? Very much. And I I talked to Jessica McKinney, who is a physical therapist here in the Boston area, and she specializes in pelvic floor health. And she explained to me some of her treatment techniques. Manual therapies are a huge um, component of our, our toolbox for addressing these issues. And that can be intravaginally or intrarectally directly um, treating the muscles of the pelvic floor. So let's just be clear, you're in there with your hands. Finger, gloved finger, a little lubricant, yeah, in the vagina or in the rectum um, to directly do some release techniques for the muscles. Um, So the pelvic floor as a muscle system 
it's under our voluntary control. So we could all do it, what's known as a Kegel. We could squeeze and tighten those muscles. But it also has these like subconscious reactions. So it's a muscle that will tighten in response to stress, in response to tension and fear and anxiety, um, much like a lot of our other postural muscles. And so you're kind of starting from the point of, you know, letting the patient know that that is the case, you know, when we suspect that that's the case and making sure that they're comfortable with what we're doing. Are you okay with us doing this? Because if you're not, there are probably plenty of other things that we can start looking at and doing. I don't need to make you more nervous in the process. I would imagine for some of these women, it's such a relief just to be able to talk about their vaginal issues with somebody who's listening and responsive and isn't just on to the next topic. So other than just being aware, what other techniques do you have for, for relaxation? Stretches, typical yoga and hip stretches that we think about, but tying that a lot to an awareness of control of relaxing the pelvic floor, it should relax when we inhale. So there's this normal reciprocal movement with our breath. And that is part of just the normal ebb and flow of our our body's mechanics. So And you do you do biofeedback? Yeah, so we do some biofeedback. Um, There are internal um, devices you can use for pelvic floor strengthening. You can use internal sensors for the biofeedback where you can squeeze against a sensor. You get a visual feedback on um, whether the muscle is contracting and and how much. Any other tools put Um, out there just that people may not have thought of? Exercise, just encouraging people to be active. I think a lot of times when people come in and they're scared of their bodies, um, not moving, not really sure what's causing things, is working with them to to just embrace physical activity and movement right. as as one of those interventions. So so that's fascinating that there really are solutions out there, but it sounds like, Rachel, like it takes some work. It's not like a quick fix. That's right. And that's why a lot of women don't necessarily do this or they start and they don't finish right. here. Of course, their surgery, you know, if you've got prolapse issues and a range of other kind of anatomical structural problems, sometimes there's a place for surgery. And actually, the FDA recently approved a new pill for women experiencing pain during intercourse. But as Jessica McKinney told me, it's only for postmenopausal women. So, you know, this is not a, for massive widespread use. Okay, so Rachel, we don't want to end this discussion without finding out how you ultimately did. What was your outcome? I had a happy ending. (laughs) As they say in the massage parlor. Thank God, yes. Yes. I went to physical therapy for several months and worked really hard in a focused way to resolve this. And it did ultimately resolve and things are working again and everything's good. Thank you for asking. (laughs) You're welcome. But I have to say, when I tell this story, I can't tell you how many women say to me, oh my God, I had something like this. Mm -hmm. I still am suffering. Is there something I can do? I I really think this is a huge problem. But at least now you know what to do about it. Right. All right. And now let's turn to men. That seems only fair, Carrie. It does. does. So Rachel, I want to talk about a male sexual problem called Peyronie's disease. What, What is that? It's a condition in which the erect penis, instead of being straight, is crooked. It has a curvature in it that in extreme cases can be as much as 90 degrees, meaning that if you think of the erect penis as like a pipe, this would be like an elbow pipe instead Uh, of a straight pipe. Bummer. Yes. Can it be treated? 
to some extent. But first, of course, men need to be willing to seek treatment, sort of like the women with with pain during sex. I spoke with Dr. Abraham Morgenthaler, who's a urologist and an associate clinical professor at Harvard. His latest book is called Why Men Fake It, The Totally Unexpected Truth About Men and Sex. And I asked him to explain Peyronie's disease in a little more detail. What creates an erection within the penis are these two chambers called the corpora cavernosa. It's like a double-barreled shotgun, if you will, that goes down the length of the penis until you get to the head. And around the actual cylinders that expand with blood is the sheath, sort of like the lining of a balloon, if you will, and it's called the tunica albuginea. And Peronis is a scarring of that. Yeah, I've I've heard it compared to one of those long balloons, and if you put some tape on that balloon, it will be bent. That's exactly right. It'll curve around where the the scotch tape is, Mm -hmm. and the same happens then with the scar tissue. So most of these, the scar tissue is on the top surface Uh of the penis, and so most of the time the penis will curve upwards. It can curve to the side, it can curve down, and in some bad cases, you can have multiple areas of scar, and it actually will curve in a couple of different directions. I've seen men who, when they have an erection, the penis curves all the way back and touches their belly again. When it's so curved, it's impossible to have sex. And psychologically, their sense of self is very, (laughs) if I can use the word, penocentric. (laughs) Like that word, yes. So they feel like they're damaged. I have men who come in and say, what woman would want to have Mm. sex with me? How common do we think it is? It's estimated around 2 to 3% of adult males. Wow where most commonly men in their 50s, but it can happen in men in their 30s and 40s and Mm -hmm. older. When I've mentioned it to people, the only thing that a few knew about it was that Bill Clinton, there were rumors that Bill Clinton might have had some identifiable bend or crook. (laughs) Yeah. I was right here. And he asked me would I kiss it. Yeah, no, I know. That's a famous line. Absolutely. And he was fondling himself. He's playing with himself now. And, And when I looked, it was pointed that way. Because I was this direction. Visual demonstration. He was going that way. That's how we'll remember the president of the United States. It's true, though. That's Paula Jones, whose sexual harassment lawsuit led to Bill Clinton's impeachment. And she's talking with a comedian named Ruby Wax. Um, okay, sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. Yeah, so, so, so it's awful because the guys feel damaged. Yeah. It's awful because in some cases when it's advanced, it can make it difficult to have sex. And so it's tough because you don't hear people talking about it. Well, and is that because no one's marketing a treatment for it yet? Let's talk about what can you do. Yeah. So there now is a treatment that is waiting for FDA approval for it. And the trade name is Zyaflex. And what it is is a collagenase. So most scar tissue is made out of a substance called collagen. And an enzyme that breaks down collagen is collagenase. And so this agent is actually around now for other medical conditions like Dupuytren's contractures. If you ever see a guy with a finger that won't straighten out completely, that's usually Dupuytren's contracture. And it's also uh, scar tissue in the sheath where the tendon is. Of the finger. So that's Uh already approved for use. In our practice at Men's Health Boston, we've been one of the sites that has actually been involved in the studies for this, to now look for a new indication for the use in Peyronie's disease. Mm -hmm. And so far, the data look very promising. And I assume it has side effects that people should be warned about, possible side Well, the ones that have been reported for the the injections for Peyronie's disease mainly have to do with bruising because you're actually injecting with a tiny needle directly into the scar tissue. 
Um, and there are a f- couple of cases where um, the stri- the sheath actually has ripped because okay. it's dissolving the tissue. Uh-huh. Corrected surgically, okay. everybody's been fine after okay. they get treated. But uh-huh. of course, there are always the risks with with any treatment. So now, there are other treatments. I was going to say, so, what are they? Yeah. So yeah. there are other injections, believe it or not, that we do for the penis, and the results are um, okay. We've had some guys do very well, and some guys don't respond. Okay. There are uh-huh. dozens of pills and supplements and things that have been used. None of them have been shown to do any good. But the ultimate treatment that we've been doing for a long time is surgery. And so there are two main kinds of procedures. The one that I've done most commonly is if the penis is bent, let's say, upwards, then what you end up doing is you pull back the skin under anesthesia and you give medicine so the penis is erect, So you can see how much curve there is. And then in the sheath on the opposite side, we basically tighten it up and shorten the opposite side so it matches the shorter side where the curve is. So it works. It's called application. And the downside is... That your erection is shorter. You're shorter. So (laughs) guys don't like that very much. But... It could make sex possible. I mean, Possible. possible. It looks better. And it's fine. For guys who have a very severe curve... We actually will cut through the scar. It expands. There's now a gap in the tissue, and right. we actually put a little graft in there. Wow. It's a bigger operation, more risk of trouble with erections afterwards. You might have some sensation loss, but it uh-huh. does work. Uh-huh. Right. One of the interesting things for me is is that until now, everybody, it, it's been a little bit of a mystery as to what causes this thing. Yeah. Right? Yes. So, you know, the standard answer for years has been it's from trauma. An injury to the penis during sex, like the penis gets bent or, you know, he's going in and out and like it comes out and he (laughs) misses when he goes in, you know, he hits the pubic bone of the woman or something like that. We've had cases where guys have fallen out of bed during sex, (laughs) all this I didn't mean to laugh. But the truth is only about 20% of men ever remember anything like that. So a few years ago, I'm very interested in testosterone work. We've done a lot of this over the years. And I measure testosterone levels in most of the men who come through my office, even if it's just as a baseline. And what I noticed was a lot of the men with Peronis had low levels of testosterone. And so uh, I had a fellow, and we put together our day, and we published it. And it turned out that 74% of men with Peronis disease had low levels of testosterone. So are you saying, men, maybe you should get your testosterone checked because otherwise you risk Peyronie's disease? So since our paper came out, we now have the first trial going on in our practice, Men's Health Boston. The study is ongoing. We'll see how Mm. it turns out. Is it a way of actually preventing the Peyronie's or treating it once you have it? You know, Peyronie's is a weird and problematic condition. And there's some men who get a curve and then it progresses over the next year or more. So we're hoping that even if it doesn't make things better, better, it'll prevent it from getting worse. Okay, so Carrie, it sounds as though there are some alternatives to surgery. That first drug Morgenthaler mentioned... Right, Zyaflex. When can we expect the FDA to approve it for the treatment of Peyronie's? Uh, it's any time now, actually. Expect it any. I mean, that stuff is always unpredictable, but it could be really any time. So that's all for this week and our Below the Waist episode. And next week, we'll be going much, much higher up in the body, actually all the way up to the head. Ah, a relief. Yes, it's back to school time. So next week, we'll be talking about college students and mental health and what parents really need to know as they send their kids back to school. Okay. The Checkup is produced at WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Our producer is George Hicks. 
The executive editor of WBUR.org is John Davidow. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. I'm Rachel Zimmerman. And I'm Carrie Goldberg. Join us next week. See you, Carrie. See you, Rachel. 